listening to the Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast with Chris Dempsey. Welcome to episode 14 of the Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast. I'm Chris Dempsey, the host. And um, let's see, you can reach me at Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast at Gmail. And uh, follow on Wouldn't It Be Cool on Instagram and Facebook. And please do. And please uh, subscribe to the podcast. And if you get the chance, um, go on iTunes and leave a review. That would be hugely helpful um, and fun to see as well. Um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Having Again, just having a blast doing it. Loving it. Um, this is a crazy, fascinating uh, episode. Um, episode 14 with uh, Larry Bittman Martin. Uh, Larry is a family friend who is a former communist spy and a former BU professor and a current uh, amazing painter. I have some of his work in my house. My folks have a lot of work in their house. And uh, he's just, yeah, I, I love his artwork, but fascinating guy. Um, I am clearly out of my element in this conversation. I do my best to hang on by a thread. Um, but he is a professional and just takes a hold of the show and runs with it. Um, he, uh, I, I just think you'll enjoy it. I had a, I had a great time sitting with him. Could have sat there all day. Um, super sweet guy. So, I can't think of anything else. Just uh, enjoy the show. Um, reach out. Let me know what you think, how it's going, and uh, enjoy Larry. Thanks. We're rolling, Larry. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm um, ready. Well, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, you are welcome. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, hopefully, be a, a, fun, a fun journey, your path. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the last major interview uh, well, a series of interviews in Prague when I visited Prague the first time after 26 years of exile. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, when I cooperated with the Czech television on a project of history of Czechoslovak intelligence service. Mm -hmm. That was, of course, after the communist regime collapsed. And uh, I visited Prague on my first trip to Prague after many, many years. And the television asked me to cooperate with them on this project of 19 segments, 19 one-hour <laughs> uh, segments about history of Czechoslovak oh, television. Wow. Wow. So it was uh, that 
consumed a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. It was quite this interesting. One. It was, of course, it started uh, by World War One, and then what the Czechoslovak intelligence was doing during the 20s, 30s against Hitler, uh, because Czechoslovakia was one of the major targets for Nazi Germany during that period, and then during the war and after the war. So it was it was an interesting project, and they were, of course, mainly interested what, about my involvement in the role as a, a deputy commander of the so-called disinformation department that was established under the Russian command and uh, was producing, was orchestrating international deception games that were mainly uh, designed to hurt the American image around the world. Mm. Well, so, uh, but uh, usually uh, when, I, when I'm in, interviewed, one of the first questions is, how did you land in a in, communist intelligence service? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, frankly, I was very much interested in politics uh, from very young age. I was 15 years old when I entered the Communist Party mm. uh, without even the knowledge of my parents, who were, who were also very much politically involved, and uh, both of them were members of the Communist Party. But they didn't know about my joining the Communist Party. It was my own initiative. And uh, that uh, for quite a few years, I was genuinely very enthusiastic about supporting the policy of the Communist Party. I was very young, very naive, and it was, it was something that uh, was influenced very much by the experience during the war uh, and, of course, after the war. First of all, uh, Czechoslovakia, a country in Central Europe, which was established as an independent country in 1918, that is after World War I, was a democratic country, was an island of democracy surrounded by dictatorial regimes, Hungary, Romania, Russia, Poland, Germany, Austria, all were dictatorships. Mm. And Czechoslovakia was the only country in that area that uh, followed democratic principles. Actually, it was very much influenced by American political system. Uh, the first president of Czechoslovakia, Tomáš Garik Masaryk, was a big admirer of American political system. His wife was an American, and uh, he tried to 
established the the system according to the American model. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Czechoslovakia was became uh, very much uh, in focus of German policies because when Hitler came to power in 1933, uh, when he designed his uh, foreign uh, policy and objectives, among the first victims was to be Czechoslovakia because Czechoslovakia was one of the major producers of weapons mm. in the world mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, and so that was very valuable for, for Hitler. And so in 1938, what he organized, what became, what had great impact on political thinking of many Czechs who felt betrayed by the West. Uh, in 1938, Hitler organized a meeting in Munich, Germany, of uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain, Ch uh, Chamberlain, France, Daladier, uh, Italy, Mussolini, and Hitler. And the, the major purpose was to force Czechoslovakia and the West to give up about one-third of its territory to Germany, territory where there were Germans living in, on Czechoslovak territory. There was a large German minority in Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. about three million Germans. And uh, so he, he actually uh, dictated this, uh, that uh, Czechoslovakia would give up this territory to Germany with these three millions Germans. Well, under this enormous pressure, the Czechoslovak government agreed. Well, six months later, Hitler marched in and occupied the rest. Mm. And how, how old were you at that point? Well, in 1938, I was seven. Okay. Uh, and, uh, of course, then, during the war and after the, the war, it, it had great impact on the thinking of Czechs who felt betrayed by the West. But uh, it was... Uh, this was the, the... the feeling that in spite of the fact that Czechoslovakia had uh, treaties with Britain and France of defense, that they would, in case of the Czechoslovakia would be threatened, uh, they would defend Czechoslovakia. Mm. They absolutely ignored it, and uh, obviously Czechoslovakia became victim of Hitler. Uh, anyhow, this is something that very much contributed to, to the thinking of Czechs, who after the war were thinking, well, the West betrayed us, let us look in the opposite direction. And there was this wave of sympathy toward Russia. Uh, and during 1946, in 1946, there was the only free election 
after World War II in Czechoslovakia, mm. and the Communist Party won 37% of votes and, of course, got the yeah. position of the prime minister, minister of uh, uh, defense, and number of other important positions. So I'm men mentioning it. This was a, this was something that very much contributed to, to the movement to the left yeah. of, of thinking of Czechs, and it influenced many people, including my family, including myself, and so. I, uh, after joining the Communist Party, I probably, at least a decade, I was a very sincere member of, of the party. I believed what the Communist Party was saying, and I, I was very much active uh, in, particularly among the young. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's... It took me about ten years to slowly realize that there were some problems yeah. with the system. Can I ask? Um, uh, I'm just I'm curious about joining. How how does that actually happen when you're oh, 15 years old? And... Oh, it's it was a, at that time very informal. I yeah. actually it it was illegal because officially, according to the rules. Only individuals older than 18 oh, yeah. were supposed to be accepted as members. Mm -hmm. but, but this was the post-war atmosphere, and they look at me and said, well, you look very able, and you talk <laughs> very mature, mm -hmm. so all right, we'll accept you. So uh, I became member at the age of 15. Right. And then what does that mean? What do you start? Well, I started, well, attending... The meetings of the Communist Party, then they asked me to do a few things like preparing uh, reports about <coughs> current international affairs, what's happening around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, that made me more, interest, more and more interested in foreign affairs and in international relations, uh, be involved then in uh, various local election by uh, visiting families in the area where I lived to discuss with them support for mm. the Communist Party, uh, this kind of activities. Yeah. Uh, that I, there were also some that, uh, when I'm thinking about it now, it, they were not very noble, like... Uh, being being sent delegated to various small villages local villages and checking their libraries what oh. kind of literature they had oh, and to eliminate anything that the communist party considered ideologically dangerous or yeah. ideological subversive so uh, <laughs> I remember one. I <laughs> at that time I found in one of the libraries a book by Tomáš Garik Masaryk, the first mm. president, Ideale Humanity, the ideals of humanitarian uh, regime, and uh, I secretly read it at home. <laughs> 
And, but um, at that time, I was not. I was too young to understand actually all the aspects and consequences of of his philosophical principles. But it had some impact on me, which, and also it was one of the first violation of the communist rules. You know, to secretly yeah, yeah. bring something home that I was supposed not to do. What were you supposed to actually do with them? If you found them. To, to throw them away and they were discarded wow. and burned. Yeah. Oh my God, wow. Yeah. yeah. So that was, sounds like it was like the, the first little seed. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the, this was during the time when I was attending the, the high school, it was an elite high school court in Europe, gymnasium. It's gymnasium, it's still, it's a form educational form that uh, is different from the United States. It is an eight-year-old school that students enter after the elementary school. Mm -hmm. First, I I uh, attended five years of elementary school, then eight years of this so-called gymnasium, mm -hmm. uh, or it, I, it was an elite high school elite high school uh, in my case it was a school that was supposed to prepare students mainly for studying uh, later technical subjects at engineering subjects at the university uh, particularly architecture mm. Probably that was one th one thing that influenced me later when I retired that I went into painting because during the time uh, studying this kind of gymnasium I, I was I had to produce a number of drawings of various buildings right. uh, so that certainly had some impact on me. And during these eight years uh, at the high school, at the gymnasium, I was, uh, first of all, I was the only so-called proletarian kid because I, all other students, about 28, 30 students in the class, all of them were from middle class or upper middle class or rich families. Right. I was the only one from a typical proletarian or work working family. My mm -hmm. father was a welder. Right. Uh, so was my brother, who was 10 years older. Uh, so it was, uh, I felt during these years that I was different from the rest of the class because uh, of my social upbringing. Yeah. What was interesting, uh, after my exile, when I started going back to Czechoslovakia, uh, I met a guy who attended that school with me as a student. Uh -huh. And uh, we had a great discussion and fun. And he said to me, you know what, I have to tell you something. Uh, when we went together to school, in, in it was the first or second year at, at the gymnasium, 
when my mother saw me that I was talking to you, and she asked me, "Who is this guy?" What? Uh, and he said, "Well, he's attending the same class as I am, and uh, we became friends." And uh, and then the mother asked him about my social background and learned that I was a son of a worker, <laughs> as a proletarian. Yeah. And she uh, didn't like that. And the, the guy, his name was Yindra, said, well, he's the best student in class. <laughs> well, okay, so you can play with him. <laughs> you have to have some sort of status. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and then, of course, during the last few years at gymnasium, I became already more and more involved in politics. And so when the moment came to uh, decide what to study at the university level, I decided to study international relations, particularly international law, and uh, I graduated uh, from the law school with the degree in international law mm. with the expectation that I would eventually join the uh, in, uh, join the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and become Czechoslovak diplomat. Mm. But uh, that was... Uh, uh, that was... Uh, something in my mind, but not the reality, because I got a letter shortly before my graduation from the university. I got a letter from the Communist Party headquarters uh, inviting me to the to the building of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. They had a discussion with me about two hours, which was it was quite clear that they knew everything about me. Right. Everything. I, first, I didn't know what what was the purpose of this. Uh, I thought maybe because I uh, was too much involved with girls or what, what was it? <laughs> they found out you read that book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, they, at the end, they said, well, so... You should be very honored, but the Communist Party decided that you will work uh, in the intelligence service. I was delighted. It sounded very exciting. But at that moment, I didn't know that the Czechoslovakia had an intelligence service. Right, yeah. I didn't. I never heard about it and nothing. Yeah. Well, I accepted it, and that was the beginning of 14 years I spent in in the intelligence service. Wow. <clears throat> well, and then came also the first conflicts. Mm. Uh, I uh, uh, the it was few months after my joining the intelligence. First, I spent six months in an intelligence service school learning the profession, the basic skills and techniques of spying. Mm. Uh, and during that time, I, I, well, I came 
to the commanding officer and said, I would like to get married. And they said, well, that's very nice. Uh, we like our officers to be married and not to fool around. So who is the lady? And I said, well, her name is Anna Schön, Anna Schönova. Schön. That sounds very Jewish. Is she Jewish? Well, yes, she's Jewish, but she's not religious. She never was. She's a member of the Communist Party and blah, blah, blah. Wait a second. No, no, no. You know, Jews, uh, are, that's a different category. You can never trust them. You, and then <laughs> became this became a major conflict I had with the establishment. They didn't want to give me the permission to marry this girl wow. because she was Jewish. Uh, and this battle, this confrontation lasted several months. And finally, they said, all right, we give you the permission. However, you will not be allowed to work in the operational sector. Uh, you, this For three years, you will work in the so-called informational sector that is... Uh, not dealing with agents in person, mm -hmm. you know. The role was, to, I spent uh, every day time evaluating reports from German agents, uh, secret agents who were German citizens who were recruited for the Czech intelligence mm -hmm. in Germany. And I evaluated these reports and then prepared special reports for for the Central Committee of the Party and mm -hmm. other in communist institutions. So, and after three years, when I proved my loyalty, so then I was transferred to the operational sector uh, in. Uh, the German-Austrian operational sector. My, that's uh, what was my orientation. Uh, I didn't work against the United States or Britain or, or English-speaking countries. Mm -hmm. I worked uh, against German-speaking countries, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. Uh, and then... Eventually, was sent to Berlin in 1961. Uh, that was my first uh, mission abroad uh, under diplomatic cover. I always operated abroad under diplomatic cover, which means it was not very dangerous whenever something uh, very threatening would happen to me. I had the diplomatic passport, uh, which means that I couldn't be arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, I could be expelled from the country, but nothing more than that. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I operated in Berlin under diplomatic cover as a cultural attaché of the Czechoslovak embassy in Berlin, B uh, mainly, of course, uh, well, directing several secret agents and also 
developing new contacts and searching for new victims who could be recruited for mm. the Czechoslovak intelligence. Uh, so that, that was uh, the first experience abroad. Uh, some of the agents I directed had uh, interesting history, like a guy who was a journalist, actually disproportionately high percentage of the recruited agents were journalists hmm. for very clear reason. A journalist in an open society has official direct access to sources. Right. It is his or her <clears throat> professional job and a professional interest to collect sensitive information. Mm. So this is one of the reasons why journalists were among the highly va valued targets for a recruitment. Yeah. Uh, one of the agents I directed was a journalist. He was he was a much, much older guy than I was. At the time, I was 30, and he was over 60. And he was, he's, he was a very peculiar guy and case in history of espionage. During his lifetime, he worked for at least five intelligence services. Mm. He worked for the Czechoslovak intelligence before World War II. Mm. He worked for the Nazi intelligence service before World War II. After the war, he worked again for the Czechoslovak intelligence. He worked for the East German intelligence. He worked for the West German intelligence and for the CIA. Uh, and supposedly, with only one exception, uh, the other services were not supposed to know about it. It 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 was kind of a kind of a conf big confusion. Uh, but uh, eventually, it was discovered that he was playing uh, this game with number of. Uh, communist and non-communist services, and he was arrested in East Germany, mm. put on trial because he was also working as an East German agent. He was spent several years in East German prison, and then he was exchanged for one of the dissidents uh, arrested in communist bloc. So he was released and went back to West Germany. But uh, his, one of the very, historically very interesting deception games played by Nazi intelligence service involved this guy who worked for the Nazi intelligence before World War II, and he also worked during the same time 
for the Czech intelligence. Mm. Uh, this is also something, when I'm looking back, there were a number of people who were recruited for the intelligent, Czech intelligence, and then it was established that they worked for also other services. Uh, these people tried to make money, you know, by doing the job for uh, several intelligence services. Of course, ri the risk was very high, and in many cases they landed in prison, uh, like this one. Well, anyhow, back to his history. Uh, in 1937, Stalin ordered the arrest and eventually execution of Marshal Tukhachevsky. Marshal Tukhachevsky was the Minister of Defense of the Soviet Union. He was probably the best strategist of the Red Army. He was involved also in the revolution in 1917-18 as one of the well-educated officers mm. who joined the communists and f was fighting with the communist party and eventually be slowly gr grew and became part of the elite. And in 1937, he was not only the minister of defense, but he was also considered by some party members, a potential successor or competitors to Stalin. Mm. And that was something what the Germans used, and they played a deception game that very much hurt the capabilities of the Soviet defense system. They leaked a disinformation to the Russians that Marshal Tukhachevsky was a German agent that he was recruited by German intelligence service during the 1920s when he spent several years in Germany as a delegate, as a representative of Red Army to Germany. German, he, Red Army had, it sounds very strange, but they had a representative in Germany. Yeah. And Tukhachevsky did this kind of job for several years, which means that it was possible that he was somehow compromised and recruited. Well, without doing much evaluation whether this was true or not, Stalin immediately ordered him to be arrested and the same day he was executed. Wow. And that was a beginning of a major military purge inside the Red Army when 1,500 Russian Red Army marshals, generals, and colonels were arrested and either executed or put uh, in Siberian camps. That means practically the elite of the Red Army was wiped out. From the German point of view, it was an enormous success. Mm. And this was also the reason why one year after attacking the Soviet Union, the Germany occupied 
one third of the Soviet Union. They practically wiped out the whole defense of the Russian uh, Red Army. The, the Russian Red Army during the first year collapsed practically mm. because, and one of the reasons was that the best officers were not there. They were eliminated during the previous purges. Wow. Well, uh, well, I am talking about it because this guy, like it was established later during the old, when the, the case was evaluated, the, the guy who worked for Czechoslovak intelligence before the war and also after the war and mm -hmm. then was arrested. He was the guy who delivered this message, this disinformation message from the Germans through Czechoslovakia to the Russians. Oh. Uh, so it's, it's an example of these games that in many cases don't surface, they remain silent, particularly when it is a secret game of one elite against another elite. In many cases, it's not reported in the press, uh, all the details. And so uh, uh, sometimes the historical evaluation eventually discovers this kind of uh, uh, operation, but uh, it, I think that ma major, the majority of these games are not publicized. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you know why that is? Is it just because it's so... Well, it's, uh, you see, there are different kinds of games. Uh, some of them are highly, receive highly publicity. Those are the games that are designed to influence public opinion. The disinformation games, disinformation, uh, or what I mentioned, what the Russians labeled active measures and what the Americans are labeling covert action. It's the use of information to influence events in foreign uh, countries to influence either the government, the decision makers, by uh, leaking to them false information with the expectation that they would accept it as truthful and act upon it. That means they would make false, wrong decisions, mm. decisions that would benefit the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So this is one kind of disinformation operation. This is the kind that usually doesn't surface, doesn't make publicity. And then there is a huge uh, volume of propagandistic disinformation. This was one of these... Uh, this was the area in which I was very much involved uh, as a deputy commander of the disinformation department in the mid-1960s, 64, 65. Uh, this is designed to influence public opinion in one way or another, favoring the perpetrator. 
what it meant in the during the Cold War, of course, the major purpose was to undermine the image of the United States systematically all over the world, to present the image of the ugly American, to present evidence, or in most cases, pseudo-evidence, mm. that would hurt the public image of, of the United States. Uh, and it was quite easy because many audiences were very susceptible, particularly in developing countries you know, of Africa, Latin America, Asia, mm. but also among the left-oriented organizations in Western Europe. And, uh, and I want to uh, em emphasize very much that this does have nothing to do with the communist movement and communist party members. On the contrary, the intelligence, every communist intelligence service working under the guidance and dictatorship of the KGB was strictly prohibited to, to work with communist party members, to recruit communist party members, to influence, for example, communist party newspapers. That was taboo. Mm. That was out of touch for intelligence services. They were influenced, but officially, at the official level, by various prominent members of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union or Czechoslovakia who traveled and had official uh, contacts with the Communist Party of France or Communist Party of Italy. Mm. But intelligence service was no, never involved in order to protect the image because it, if it would be publicly exposed, that would hurt very much the Communist Party. Uh, so, anyhow, the Communist Party members were out of the focus of intelligence services. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so anyhow, uh, the, the, the whole Communist bloc was very much involved in uh, systematically undermining the image of, of the United States. Uh, I, my particular interest was, of course, Germany, and, uh, West Germany. So I <coughs> designed a great number of operations, some of which were very successful. Like, for example, in 1964, the Czechos, there were still 200,000 Germans living in communist Czechoslovakia. Uh, I didn't mention that after the war, immediately after World War II, the, these 3 million Germans who were one of the reasons why, official reasons why Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. and who then very loudly supported Hitler during the war, they were expelled from Czechoslovakia. 
Three million Germans were expelled, two millions to West Germany, one million to East Germany. They were, mm, it was quite ugly, frankly. And I'm thinking about it, how it was done, how brutally it was done, because they were just ordered from one moment to another to pack one luggage with their personal belonging and mm. put on trucks and buses and shipped out mm. of the country, leaving everything behind. Wow. Uh, they obviously became very, became great enemies of Czechoslovakia and communism. Uh, they uh, established their new organizations in West Germany with, with a strong anti-Czechoslovak message, anti-communist message, and uh, but at the same time, many, quite a few of them were recruited by Czechoslovak intelligence. Well, in 1964, when there were still 200,000 of Germans living in Czechoslovakia, the government, the communist government in Prague decided to let the Germans go because of their feelings, of their hostility. Anybody from among the Germans who wants to leave can leave. Out of these 200,000, 70,000 immediately asked for the permission to leave, mm. registered for that. Uh, and of course, all of them wanted to leave to West Germany, not to East Germany. And that was the moment when the disinformation department stepped in and recruited several hundred of them as secret agents, hmm. instructing them what to do, how to do it. They received uh, the communication systems uh, and of course, all of them were selected for this job because they hated communism and hated Czechoslovakia, mm. which means when they crossed the borders to Germany, the first thing that they said, I'm so happy to be here. I became recruited. This is what the communist bastards want me to do. Mm. And they revealed everything, what was, what, what they were supposed to do, all the instructions. All this was disinformation, mm. false. To bring the West German counterintelligence to absolutely false conclusions mm. about this supposedly new offensive of communist spying in West Germany, they allotted all resources that, ha that they had to investigate this group where they couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And those were hundreds and hundreds of supposedly spies mm. for Czechoslovakia, wow. while the real spies had free hands to operate for many years to come. Wow. Clever. So this is, uh, that's the example of one of the games that 
actually never found any publicity. Mm. This was a game of one intelligence service against another intelligence mm. service. Very effective. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> Clever. Um, do you remember, or can you tell us like what your first um, mission was? <laughs> yeah. Your first... Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Out there, your what did you call it? Not your the one where you weren't at the desk, but you were out on the in the field. I, I'm sorry. When you were, you were in the, your mission in the field, not your mission at the desk. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. the uh, the first uh, operation abroad, I was sent to Austria to meet a guy uh, who was recruited of, as a Czechoslovak spy. Uh, an Austrian, an Austrian. And, and, and no, he was a German. He mm. was a German, and I was supposed to meet him at the railway station in Linz, in Austria. This guy, uh, about a year before this meeting, uh, decided to visit Prague. He was a German who owned. A huge property and a castle in southern Bavaria, and it was very popular, particularly among the West German political elite, who came there, spent their free time there, meet, talked politics, and it was quite interesting from the intelligence service point of view. Mm. And this guy originally lived in Czechoslovakia before World War II and during the war. And then came the end of the war and he realized, well, it will not be very pleasant for Germans. So he decided to move quickly out of Prague, escape before the Russian liberated Prague. And he owned a huge properties in Prague, including some famous paintings. And he asked several friends in Prague to keep these paintings for him. And it was uh, at the time of, well, 12, 13 years after the war that he finally decided to go to travel to Prague and pick up the painting Mm. and bring them to West Germany. He was, of course, checked at, at the at the border borders with Germany, arrested for trying to smuggle out uh, valuables that didn't belong to him, because uh, and put in prison. And then, of course, he was visited by two elegant gentlemen. I, I, it was not one of me who said, oh, listen, if you cooperate with us, uh, you can get the paintings and you can uh, do in Germany whatever you want to, and you will work with us. So uh, he signed the cooperation with the Czech intelligence, and I was the first guy who was to meet him and instruct him what to do next. Mm -hmm. And the Czech service had the idea or plan that it would, uh, with his help, 
it would change this recreation place. It was a huge castle into a whorehouse mm. that uh, <laughs> would actually service the political elite coming from Bonn, from the capital, uh, making compromising photographs and blackmailing them. And, oh, and eventually this would function as a recruitment enterprise. And I was supposed to <laughs> discuss all these details with him. And he was supposed to come. I, I never met him in person. I only not knew him mm. from the papers. He was supposed to come with dressed in the traditional German green uniform that the Bavarians uh, mm. like to, to wear. The uh, Lederhosen? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I came to the station a few minutes before that time. Yeah, and, um, and of course, uh, he, I was supposed to address him through a, a, a phrase, a password phrase. Mm. You know. uh, and he was supposed to answer properly uh, using, again, certain words. And I came there and looked around, and I said, oh my goodness, there were probably 30 guys dressed the same way. <laughs> it was some kind of a trip of, uh, you know, guys from Germany who were... All dressed like that? <laughs> all dressed in the same way, and I, I panicked. I approached the first one, and did I meet you last year in Salzburg, and he was supposed to say something, nothing. So I went to the next one, nothing. <laughs> then the third one. Then, then, of course, after five, six people, I forgot whom I talked to, and I, some of them I approached several <laughs> times. It was a total disaster. It took me uh, a long time, finally, to find this guy dragged him into the rest into a restaurant at the railway station and it's uh, funny d discussed with him what he was supposed to do and he was absolutely shocked he he had no idea what he was into oh, wow. and he said well these gentlemen in prague when i was in prison they were talking about this these wonderful ideas of socialism and and you are talking about a whorehouse, you know. <laughs> well, uh, I made another uh, meeting with him, arranging another meeting, and uh, then traveled back to Prague. And then he <laughs> he did the best thing he could do. He decided that he would not go into this danger. He sold his property. Uh moved out of there and uh, to, to another end of Germany in, in the north. And the service, of course, lost interest in him right. because he didn't have any, uh, any value anymore. Right. So, so it was a total disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a Pink Panther movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. Um, what about... Um, I was also curious about, did you ever feel like you were in danger? Did you ever have a, a dangerous 
Well, mission. the danger, no, no, because as I mentioned, uh, I was protected by uh, the diplomatic immunity. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you use the bathroom, mm. and on the door, you probably didn't notice, there is a sign, CD. And this is the only thing that I took as a memento when I was escaping from Austria and crossing the borders to Germany. And it was in Germany that I approached the American embassy and asked for political asylum in 1968. Well, anyhow, I took off that sign, mm. CD. This is the sign that gave me diplomatic immunity. That means that uh, whatever I did, if I would, would be stopped by police, or, as a diplomat, uh, even the car, the, the police was not allowed to get into it mm -hmm. and uh, search the car because it was protected by international law uh, as a property of a foreign government. And I would get honored? Yeah. Yeah, well, most of the time, right, right, more, right. not always, not yeah. always. most of the time. So uh, there were, of course, a number of people who worked under different cover. Some of them worked at, as, as, a, as journalists. They didn't have any protection. They could be arrested and sentenced as any other regular member of the society. Uh, I, one of the guys, a friend of mine who, who was an officer of the Czech intelligence, he spent years as a so-called illegal abroad or the American spy vocabulary sometimes use the term sleeper. Mm -hmm. That means those are agents who are sent abroad to operate as citizens of the new country. Uh, and uh, they are, they don't have any protection. If you remember about five years ago, FBI arrested about 10 or 11 Russian spies belonging to that category here, oh, the right. so-called illegals who were, oper who were pretending to be regular citizens of the United States. Mm. This required a very special preparation. Like, for example, an agent who would operate in the United States as a sleeper would be prepared usually for about two or three years at home in Prague for this mission, instructed and well-prepared linguistically. Mm. It was sometimes difficult to eliminate all accents, but uh, there was an effort to really uh, make the individual almost indistinguishable mm -hmm. from a local person as far as using language mm -hmm. is concerned. And then 
he would be sent to East Germany secretly and established in East Germany as a citizen of East Germany and work there for about six months a year. Then we receive an order to escape to West Germany, mm. establish a new identity in West Germany, work there usually for a year or so, and then receive the order to move as an immigrant to Canada. And then finally from Canada, after receiving Canadian citizenship, moved to the United States. Wow. So it was very difficult for the counterintelligence service to find the country of origin mm. of that individual. Yeah. You see. So this shows that the Russians and the communist countries, they try to prepare people carefully for this kind of mission. The friend I'm mentioning, could you show me your hand? Uh, you would never be able to work as an illegal <laughs> right. because of your uh, tattoos. Right. Uh, he was uh, selected for that job, but he was also operated on, and he had several tattoos that were surgically removed oh, wow. uh, for obvious reasons mm -hmm. that this was uh, too... A marking. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, so what led you to... What was so, your... again, I didn't get any special protection. I didn't need any special protection. I mm. never was in any real danger. Uh, so, uh, my danger was from the East, not from the West. Right. Because, you see... Uh, I would say that uh, my uh, political maturing and my changing of opinion, political opinion, started long before my defection, but it took probably about 10 years to come really to the conclusion and decision to, to make that final step. Yeah. Uh, was there a it, moment that... It, it was, you know... First of all, of course, the conflict with my, with the communist establishment about my wife mm -hmm. being Jewish, which was very, very, uh, I was very hurt and very, uh, it, it was unbelievable. She, her whole, whole family was communist family. Mm. Her father was one of the, guys who helped to establish Communist Party in Eastern Slovakia mm. and uh, to label them as enemies of the system was absolutely outrageous. Yeah. So I, of course, was uh, angry about that, but tried to push it aside. And, uh, and then, of course, came a series of events and my experiences like... Uh, the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 when the Russians invaded Hungary that they wanted just to introduce a more liberal kind of communism. And the Russians 
sent uh, 20,000 soldiers and crushed it brutally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in Berlin, stationed in Berlin, when uh, Kennedy came there mm-hmm. and spoke. Uh, and uh, when the Berlin Wall was built, that was a, a hard pill to swallow because, uh, you know, theoretically, the regime, communist regime, was claiming that, well, there are, it's necessary to close the borders, close Berlin, because uh, the West is uh, sending spies. Of course, they were sending spies, but nothing in comparison with the amount of spies sent from the East to the Mm. West. But uh, the major reason was that um, many East Germans were using it to escape from East Germany. Between 1957 and 1961, when the wall was built in Berlin, four million East Germans escaped. Four million, which means that in 10, 20 years, there won't be too many people left. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the reason. And there were a number of other events that eventually contributed to the total disillusionment with with the system. But like many, many other officers in the service, I became quite cynical about it. that was the only way how to survive. And in 1968, there was a hope that eventually this will change. It started with the, the movement among the writers and journalists in Czechoslovakia, demanding more freedom, more changing the system to more uh, representative system to open the borders for Czech citizens to travel mm-hmm. if they wanted to, uh, to allow other political parties to compete with the Communist Party, and number of other uh, items that were to establish something that what we called socialism with human face. That means on one side to maintain to and keep the some of the achievements of dictatorial socialism like free medical care, mm-hmm. free education, uh, pensions for all, uh, and connect it, combine it with traditional Freedoms like uh, freedom of the press, freedom of other political parties, freedom to travel, and and so on. Why did they, Why do you think that they? They're. Am I asking this right? If I say, the government felt that those needed to be separated. Well, this was, of course, at that time, uh, the regime, the system was built according to the Soviet model, and. Uh, even the Czech government and Czech Communist Party uh, Central Committee couldn't establish something without Soviet approval. Mm-hmm. Everything was strictly controlled. The 
to give you an idea in inside the intelligence service, for example, as a regular operative of the intelligence service, when I prepare an operation, any kind, uh, uh, it has to it had to be designed first. So I had to propose, write a proposal. Then when I finished the proposal, I had to go to the Russian advisor who was sitting several doors mm -hmm. in the same building. Give him the text, even translate it into Russian, and then discuss it with him. He had some recommendations that then I went back and had to include it. And only then I could submit this to my commanding officer, the, uh, the, the commanding officer of the German operational department. First question he had was, did you discuss it with the Russian advisor? Yes. So if, if he agreed, he signed it and sent this proposal to the chief of the service chief, the commanding officer of the whole intelligence, who had again his advisor. And there, mm. the same procedure went on with this top advisor to the intelligence. And if, if it was a very important operation that could hurt the image of the Soviet Union or Czechoslovakia in case of failure, it had to go to the Minister of Interior who had his advisor. So there was this three-stage mm. con total control. Mm. So the whole system, not only in the intelligence, but uh, economy, uh, press, everything was strictly controlled. But in 1968, finally, there was this this public discussion that started by journalists when more and more uh, freedoms were demanded. But it was a discussion. There was, still was nothing changed. And among the demands was uh, I sent a proposal to the headquarters of intelligence about drastically changing the Czechoslovak intelligence service to serve Czechoslovak foreign policy interests because Czechoslovak intelligence, communist intelligence was second largest intelli communist intelligence service next to the KGB, second most effective intelligence mm. Operating all over the world in countries where Czechoslovakia had absolutely no interest mm. like in a number of Latin American countries, you know, Argentina, Uruguay, uh, Brazil, Czechoslovakia had absolutely no military interest, no political interest. Mm. The same was true about number of countries in Africa, in Asia. Uh, well, anyhow, it was a gigantic, tremendously expensive organization that served the Russians. Because whenever there was a, something very important, like one of my agents was a member of the West German parliament, and he was a member of the defense committee, 
through his hands went the most important military documents from NATO, including everything about Americans stationed in Germany. And, uh, you know, whenever it landed in Prague and then uh, we send it to the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the Czech government, they said, well, that's very nice. But they didn't know what to do with it, you know. It went, of course, to Moscow. They were tremendously happy and uh, this was the real purpose. You know? So anyhow, uh, in 1968... The, my proposal was to drastically reduce the size of the intelligence and operate only in countries where Czechoslovakia had direct military, economic, or political interests, mm -hmm. which, of course, was a major s sin, right. political sin in the eyes of the Russians. Uh, and uh, the period lasted several months between... March 1968 to August 1968, when the Russians decided enough is enough. These Czechs are crazy. We, are, we <laughs> will stop this movement, and they decided to invade Czechoslovakia. Uh, Czechoslovakia was the only communist party, a uh, communist country, with the exception of Romania, where there were no Russian soldiers stationed. Uh, so, on August 21st, 1968, when I woke up in Vienna, uh, Austria, I learned that the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia, and that was the moment of my ultimate decision. Mm. This was it. I decided to... I, I can never, ever worked, uh, do the same thing that I did before. So uh, to defect and ask Americans for political asylum. And so that was walking into that, uh, in we drove, Germany? Yeah, drove to Germany and approached the Americans there, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I will sip water. Okay. All right. So, what is the um, what's the what's the process of defecting like? And when you got to when you how how soon did it take, or how long did it take for you to get to the uh, to get to the U.S.? Well, it's uh, it's the the decision is very difficult. I would say that. Uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia had the greatest impact on mm -hmm. my decision. And when, when I decided, uh, we talk about it with my wife at night, and we were thinking about if we defect, what kind of impact it will have on our relatives 
in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, uh, the regime couldn't do much against my father and my brother because they were workers. They couldn't be sent right. to do anything else than they did. And my father was already uh, retired. So I, won't, I know one thing, that for him it was probably psychologically very difficult to absorb to when he learned that I defected. Because he was uh, a simple man. He believed in the system. He believed in communism in spite of all the problems and mistakes. So I... I think that for him it was probably for him it was difficult, but I couldn't communicate with him after my defection. Mm. I, I I don't know. Uh, Ever again? Never again. He oh, wow. shortly shortly after that he died. You oh, know. Wow. Two two years later he died. Wow. Uh, and then of course I came here and the f I had to spend about a year in Washington, D.C., being debriefed about half of the time, very intensively, every day, about eight hours. Wow. And uh, then a little less, but altogether about a year. So the, you know, the people who were involved, the CIA, FBI, Defense Intelligence, State Department, uh, uh, and a number of other def uh, intelligence and counterintelligence institutions. Uh, that was very, very intensive. Uh, it was also the beginning of the learning of something about America, American society, it took me probably about 10 years to feel again as a fish in water, you know, mm -hmm. as, because uh, everything was so different and uh, the uh, uh, however, I was, uh, I think, lucky that I met a number of people who were not afraid of my highly controversial past. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, when I came here and I spoke with the group of the intelligence operatives the first day, I said, listen, I will tell you everything I know about communist intelligence. There's only one thing I want you to know, I don't want to go into spying again after the debriefing. Right. I'm tired of it. I would like to go as far away from it as possible. Fine, that was a gentleman agreement. And mm -hmm. when the debriefing was over, they shook my hand and said, good luck, Larry. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is what, what I got and this is what I wanted to. Mm. And... I always was thinking about teaching, but uh, uh, again, to 
I, I, I was lucky that I met a guy in 1969 when I was looking for a job and I found that uh, there was a meeting of American Public Opinion Research Association in Massachusetts, in Western Massachusetts. So I thought maybe I, I could get a job as a public opinion researcher. That was something I was involved in, mm -hmm. in manipulating public opinion. <laughs> so, uh, and one of the guys, one of the friends that I met, met at the Fletcher School uh, said, would you take with you a guy, he's uh, going there or so, and his name is uh, David White, and uh, sure, yeah. So uh, I spent a couple of hours driving with this guy, Dr. David Manning White, who was the chairman of the journalism department at Boston University. All right. uh, and I told him openly who I was, what was my past. And, uh, and he said, you know, maybe you could teach a course on international press problems. Uh, the professor who was teaching it was just about to go for sabbatical. And uh, so that's what he said, and I started next semester as a lecturer mm. teaching that one course. And, uh, at BU? At the, BU, yeah. you know, at the College of Communication. It was called at the time School of Public Communication. And uh, uh, they, when they evaluated my work at the end of the semester, that they said, oh, that I did a good job, so they offered me a position of assistant professor. And then gradually I became associate professor, professor, and mm -hmm. uh, I retired as, as a professor emeritus in 1988 when the students at BU, at all schools, evaluated four best professors of the university. Out of 3,500 professors, mm. I was among them, wow. among the four best professors, Jeez. which was really, for well, me, that was really That's the quite best. an honor. Yeah. It was, the, the class was the same, the same title, the um, public, foreign public journalism? Well, I taught the first 10 years, uh, I was teaching number of courses dealing with international communication but not not with disinformation or propaganda i taught courses like press systems around the world mm. government and press around the world uh, reporting foreign affairs how foreign correspondents operate mm. Uh, and I taught also in several courses dealing with journalistic research, uh, which is basically the same as the research of spies. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah, right. So mainly dealing with uh, 
students who were working on their master's thesis to work as their advisor. And then uh, it was in 1980, about 10 years after my joining the faculty, that the dean asked me to, to whether I would be willing to teach a course on disinformation and the press, how mass media are being manipulated across borders, and what the new generation of foreign correspondents should know about it, and how this is conducted and done, and what are the dangers in reporting uh, foreign affairs in this new environment. So when, when, when the course started being offered, uh, some parents were sending letters. The, the course was called Disinformation and the Press, and they thought that we were teaching <laughs> the students how to disinform, you know, how to, <laughs> <laughs> how to make them a, li a liar. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's, <clears throat> well, anyhow, and then in 1985, I established a special program for the study of international disinformation and also the a special archive. Uh, and then, of course, came to the, came the end of the Cold War. And, uh, and also that I was very close to my retirement. Mm. And it was interesting that uh, this program for the study of international disinformation, I had to find the uh, foundations that would support it, you know. It was, everything was on my shoulders. So I spent a lot, a lot of time traveling, uh, visiting various foundations that would help to finance the program. Uh, then uh, immediately when the Cold War ended, you know, America said, oh, we won, we won, it's over. Now, why should we now deal with this subject now? <laughs> Immediately, the financing stopped and the interest in the subject stopped. Mm. Number of universities stopped uh, offering courses dealing with Russia, Russian history, Russian current affairs. And, and then, came my retirement and I approached a number of universities and research centers offering them my archive. I had over 400 outstanding documentaries illustrating various aspects of international disinformation. Nobody wanted wow. it. Wow. So the whole archive was destroyed. Oh, wow. Uh, and I told the people who wanted to listen, listen, the Russians didn't change. The Cold War is over, but number one, KGB is still there. Yeah. It is doing the same business. It is actually operating under much favorable, more favorable conditions. Uh, this country should continue studying what the Russians are doing. 
nobody listens. It would. It was <laughs> two years ago when one of the guys who was who worked for the State Department uh, section involved in counter propaganda against the Russians, you know, who said, "Oh, this is this. The Russians are involved in a major offensive uh, against us." It is, and they were now just putting together what mm. what was totally just destroyed uh, at, at 15, 18, 20 years ago. You know, and you see now what is happening. They are involved in a major offensive that against the United States, now influencing even American election process. And uh, we are surprised. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, and now when I'm thinking about it, you know, to, for example, uh, when State Department approached me whether I would be involved again, I said, listen, 20 years ago when I left, I really left, I stopped paying attention to, 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 to this. I also stopped paying attention to the major channel that is internet and mm. uh, computer communication channels. And this is what is happening now. You see, all these messages are circulating and are being spread by Russians, not through press like yeah. 40, 50 years ago, but through internet, through uh, special channels uh, uh, that I'm a total idiot now right. you know, in, in that field. Now it's totally different from what it used to be during the Cold War. It's totally different. Yeah. Is it same game, different tools? Yeah. Yeah. Well, where did um, where did painting come in? Well, it, it came in after the after my retirement. Actually, uh, when I retired, the dean asked me whether I would continue teaching part time the course on disinformation and the press, and which I s agreed to, and uh, I was. At that year, I was walking to the classroom the first day of classes, and I suffered a major heart attack. Mm, and so all my classes then mm. were canceled, and I had to do something at home. So I started painting. Yeah. Had you really never painted before, before no, that? Oh, my no. God. What I mentioned to you, I did these sketches of various yeah. houses as yeah. a... Uh, a student on, of high school. I'm going to put some uh, when I when I share this podcast. I'm going to put some pictures of your paintings up too, so people can see it. Because yeah, as uh -huh. I told you, I have a couple in my kitchen, and uh, yeah. my parents' house are filled with it. But um, yeah. yeah, you're very very talented for for God, especially for how recent. And it is. Uh, I uh, just this year. I decided to 
contribute. Uh, you probably heard about the program that was initiated in Gloucester to help the drug addicts mm. uh, by helping them uh, treating them as patients, mm. not as criminals. Mm -hmm. Helping them to be medically treated to get rid of their addiction, mm -hmm. and it started in Gloucester. Here, the the police chief in Gloucester, uh, about two years ago, started this program, and uh, of course, it requires a lot of money. So, <clears throat> I decided to. to to design a number of uh, posters and sell posters and some paintings through the Unitarian Church. I had mm -hmm. an exhibition there in mm -hmm. May, and they sold altogether $1,500 of oh, posters. That was uh, quite a few. Mm -hmm. And several months after that, the same thing in Gloucester at the local Colors Gallery. That was the gallery I started with 10, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. And they sold about $800 of posters. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, if, I'll show you here. Uh, Well, you have to come here. Yeah, uh, hang on. Uh, this is one of the posters showing Bill O'Reilly, uh, who, is, who is a very uh, highly valued man by your stepfather. <laughs> and uh, Bill O'Reilly was my was a student of. Boston University College of Communication, who graduated in 1975. Mm. I don't know whether he was in one of my classes, but anyhow, about two years ago, a year ago, two years ago, yeah, uh, there was a public discussion when Bill was, uh, was he claimed that in previous years he was a war correspondent right. which is not true he was he spent some years as a foreign correspondent reporting foreign affairs but he never was reporting wars mm. he also claimed that he was involved in reporting wars between Britain and Argentina in 1980 and they other journalists said this is bullshit that's not true and Anyhow, there was this public discussion about him and that he was lying uh, about a number of things. And so I designed this, this poster and uh, saying, damn it, I should have taken the disinformation class at Boston University with that professional liar, Martin. <laughs> Anyhow, so... Uh, that was uh, that was the, the 
those were the posters that uh, that I did. So I'm still involved in painting, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> you're you're yeah, you're featured now in that <clears throat> the gallery down in in uh Bearskin Neck yeah, in Rockport. Yeah. Yeah. Art Nook Gallery, yeah. <clears throat> I went in there one day, I didn't know you were in there and I was walking down there and I saw all your paintings. I was like, Hey, mm-hmm. I know this guy. There's even some paintings in there with a, a sort of a similar style. Yeah. And I wasn't yeah. sure if you sort of did all of them yeah. and there was uh, a you know, like uh, another style going on, but Yeah, I have about ten paintings there. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah all right yeah pretty incredible incredible story um do you have a website uh well do you I sell have, your yes, do you sell your paintings have, anywhere but the gallery yes but i have never sold uh, i have never used that for selling mm, but people could see them yeah yeah uh-huh, what's yeah. your what is what is your website address do you remember it is, uh, you, I'll sh- wait a second. I'll show you. He's writing it down. It's worth it, though, to go visit this website. His paintings are beautiful. The um, are are a lot of your paintings are this uh, are the um, architectural subjects? Are they Prague? Uh, yeah, some of them are of Prague. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, let's see that. So it's... uh, So studio... Studio 006 and a half. You see? Oh, that is funny. Okay. Yeah, I mean, one of my... (laughs) Several of my friends when I started, uh, when I moved here and uh, uh, made it into a studio, they said, well, you should have a name for the studio and you should name it Studio 007, and I said, "Well, that's bullshit. That's yeah. too propagandistic." So it's officially it's called Studio 006. <laughs> that's really funny. So I don't know if you could hear that too well, but he he uh, named the studio after sort of after 007, but Studio 006 and a half dot com. Oh, that's what, awesome. Would I hang outside? <laughs> 006.5 but the website is um www.studio006 and a half so a n d a h a l f.com studio006 and a half um so larry yeah. 
Thank you so much for doing this. You can uh, eventually at home, you can uh, I think he's starting up the computer. There are a number of uh, interviews or documentaries that I participated in, oh, cool. including Dateline, uh, NBC, uh, and are you trying to get the website for that too? I, yes, I'll show you. Uh, if you if you Google yeah. Larry Martin Bittman, right? So Google Larry Martin Bittman. How do you spell Bittman? B i t t m a n. B i t t m a n. Larry Martin Bittman. So and then, there is, among other things. Yeah, I'm looking at the screen, and it's one, two, three, four, five, about five down. You can see a YouTube yeah, this is the Dateline, link, uh, which is the uh, actually when Dateline interview they came with me during my first visit to Prague after the twenty. Oh, they did. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Cool. I'll check that out, and I'm sure a lot of other people will too. Yeah, there are also there's an interview with BBC about one there's one operation that if if there would be similar circumstances uh, I would do do that again and that is, that was an operation in 1964, forcing the West German government to extend the statute of limitations for the prosecution of war criminals. Mm. Mm. This was supposed to expire in 1965, 20 years after the end of the war. Wow. That means that uh, after that, war criminals wouldn't be punished in right. Germany. And I designed an operation and conducted an operation that very much influenced not only the public opinion, but also the government in Germany to extend the statute of limitations first for another 10 years mm -hmm. and then eventually another 10 years and they finally they said there will not be any limitation oh, good. war criminals wow. can be can be prosecuted wow. any time and it 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 was uh, uh, it dealt with uh, one of my 
or originally one of my hobbies in scuba diving. Uh, Czechoslovak television decided to do a documentary about uh, two mysterious lakes at the Czechoslovak-West German borders, Devil's Lake and Black Lake, and hired a group of divers to do the uh, research and then filming underwater. And I was one of the divers. Oh, they didn't know anything about my background. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, you know, I put, it's a long, long story, four large chest boxes supposedly filled with original Nazi documents at the bottom of the lake. Oh my God. That was then discovered by the group of divers that including, included me. <laughs> and with original Nazi documents that were actually from the Russian archives. Wow. Uh, and that was the beginning of a huge campaigns uh, that lasted several years and f that forced uh, the West German government to extend the statute of limitations and, and also to limit very much uh, the work of the West German intelligence service in communist countries by declaring that we discovered lists of Nazi agents that uh, recruited people who were recruited for German Nazi intelligence service during the war because these people were then after the war approached and worked again for West German intelligence. Mm -hmm. And by declaring this, we forced the West German, West German intelligence service to stop the communication with these people. They were dead for them from that moment on. Wow. But, uh, but anyhow, the major achievement was the prosecution of war criminals. That's so huge. That, uh, well, it's crazy. It was very successful. Yeah, that's something to be proud of. <clears throat> All right, Larry. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Good luck. It's a very interesting project that you are involved in. Oh, I appreciate that. All right. You want to say you want to say goodbye to anybody? I'm sorry. You want to say goodbye to anybody? Goodbye to everybody. Well, good, good <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> goodbye, goodbye. Well, it's. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm thinking about what is happening now and what was happening 50 years ago. And uh, most of the problems are still with us. Yeah. And they are even more serious than they were at the time, at the time of the Cold War. What is happening now between the United States and Russia, uh, it shows that... Uh, uh, we have to be very concerned what the Russians are doing. Uh, so. Hmm. <clears throat> On that note. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Larry.